if we talk about the concept of doctrine or theology, there tends to be two kind of extremes uh, represented, okay, when we start to talk about doctrine or theology. On one extreme, we have, uh, in our culture especially, we have this allergy to any kind of truth claims regarding spirituality or religion. And so sometimes what happens when we start talking about doctrine or theology, we have folks that end up over here in this camp and even in the church where we might say, you know what, it's just not that important. I mean, the the doctrine, the theology, the doctrinal statement, it's not like, it's just not that big of a deal. Let's just, hey, love everybody, be nice, and that's what we need, right? And so that's kind of where folks end up. And that might be expressed in our culture in an extreme where like there is no spiritual truth, or in the church it's often not quite that extreme. It's just more like, eh, doctrine, calm down, not that big of a deal, right? So that's kind of one, one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those of us who have the doctrinal statement of the church in a frame uh, on the wall at home. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm not sure any of us are quite there. Uh, Praise the Lord. But, uh, you know, there, there are folks who, for, for, for them, doctrine and theology is everything. It's all that matters, right? And so they know, you know, yeah, we know about the gospel and all that. But truthfully, to get into heaven, you're going to have to take a theology test and like a long one. So you need to be ready. You know, that, that's kind of the worldview over here, right? And, and we know, and hopefully you know where we're going in this, we know that neither of those attitudes is accurate or correct. We don't want to say, we can never say, eh, doctrine, not that big of a deal. On the other hand, we know that doctrine and theology in and of itself is not everything. And 1 John is a really interesting book because it's a book that says doctrine matters. It's crucial, but doctrine matters as it informs our living. It's actually the means of transformation. It's what enables us to live by faith. There's a, there's a, a question of how, how do we make progress and how do we move forward in the Christian life? And the Apostle John does not see it's like an either or. He says, here's the deal. Yes, we want transformation and life change, but you're not getting that, the real deal there, without truth, with, without doctrine, without theology. The fact is in 1 John, we're going to see that theology matters, but it matters only insofar as we respond by faith to the truth that we read about. And that truth transforms then the way we live. My friend Wilby, this was a, you know, a big focus of his life, William Wilberforce back in the 1700s in England. Uh, you know, at, at his, in his generation, he was struggling because the, there was moral decline in England. So gambling was on the rise, immorality was on the rise, drunkenness was on the rise. He saw obviously the major blight on uh, the culture of the British Empire as slavery. He was concerned. So the question was, well, how do we address this behavior? How do we change the behavior? How do we get to it? And his, his answer was, the only answer to the problems of our culture is the truth of the gospel. That the gospel, that real faith in the, in the historical Jesus, right, that actually changes then and transforms our lives. He said it this way. He said, the superior excellence of Christianity is seen in how Christian doctrines provide for the observance of Christian precepts. Another way to say that is this. Faith in the gospel fuels life change. Faith in the content of the gospel, right, fuels life change. So what about you? We're gathered here this morning, and we all need to change. We all could identify, given time, right, and energy, we all could identify particular areas of our life where we need to grow, where we need to 
improve in saying no to temptation and saying yes to following the Spirit of God. And you might just start off this morning as we, as we get into 1 John right at the beginning, of just asking, where am I struggling? And here's the, the, the disconnect. Often we think about where we're struggling, an issue with the family, could be an issue at work or at school, an issue with our finances, a health issue, whatever, right? whatever our struggle is, right? We might think about our struggle. We might think the last thing I need to deal with that, that problem I'm having is theology. What I really need is some practical help. So if I could just get like seven steps to improve my family, that would be really helpful. What I don't need is a, a theology book. So I, I just need, give me something practical, right? That's, that's um, often a kind of a, a, just a gut feel or a sense of how we should respond to our need to grow. But what's so funny, when we start reading First John, it becomes very clear. You want practical change on the ground level? You have to have theology. You have to have accurate information about who God is and what he has done and why it matters, right? So we, again, we know we have to grow. The question is, what, what does the theology of Jesus Christ have to say about our situation? And so that really sets the table for getting into just the beginning of 1 John and why, right at the outset, it's such a big deal what the apostles actually saw and heard and experienced with Jesus, we're going to ask the question this morning, okay, well, so how does that make a difference for me, right? But we got to get there through the words of the Apostle John. Watch chapter 1, verse 1 here in 1 John. John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and then he kind of interrupts himself there, so we're just going to pause right there at verse 1. I want to just draw your attention to a few things here in verse 1. The first is his very first statement. He says, what was from the beginning? And you might remember back to the gospel of John. It's written by the same disciple of Jesus, okay, the apostle John, right? And so at the beginning of the, the gospel of John, he wrote, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Here in his first letter, he says, what was from the beginning and so there, he's, he's basically, I think, winking at us to, hey, see my gospel if you're not, like, up to speed on all the details, right? So he's connecting, this introduction connects the gospel of John with, these, uh, with 1 John, with the letter of 1 John. What was from the beginning? Well, it's the Word. And who is the Word? Well, the Word is God. And the Word was with God. And so there's immediately this recognition of eternal truth that goes back pre-Genesis 1-1, Right? So you want to talk about theology. He says, let's go all the way back and let's just remind everybody that, that what was from the very beginning, before there was anything else, what was from the very beginning, and then he goes on, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and now he's keying in on his experience as an apostle walking with Jesus, right? He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed, that word for observing there. It might also be translated like experienced. Like it, the emphasis, he says, we have seen it with our eyes, so they saw it, but then also they experienced it. I mean, they, they lived it, right? He says, what we have observed or experienced and what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John, he delays, he doesn't, it's like he interrupts himself. It's not a complete thought yet, but notice what he does. He front loads the content of what he witnessed heard, and experienced as an apostle. He says, I heard, I saw, I touched things, right, that, that basically change everything. And all of that is connected to the Word, 
capital W, that was from the beginning. Jesus, the Messiah. And he says, I've heard, I heard, I saw, I experienced all this stuff. And all of that was, it, it, it's concerning the word. But he doesn't, he doesn't just say the word at the end of verse 1. He says the word of life. A, a different way to think about that is the word that gives life. Or the word that brings life. Some braver translations might put a capital W on that. Some scholars think there's an allusion here to Jesus as the word from John 1.1. 1, 1. It's very possible. Even if it's not supposed to be a capital W, the idea here is that the message that gives life is the message about the word, Jesus, who was in the beginning with God and who is God. So you have this acknowledgement by John. He says, I have to, to deliver to you. I have a crucial message that I, I witnessed with my eyes. I heard, we touched and experienced. I actually lived it, right? And that message, it gives life. It, it, it brings life. It's shorthand here for the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse two, he, he kind of keys on that word life, and then he, he runs with it for a second. In, in verse 2, he says, that life, so speaking of the word of life, the word that gives life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Again, if, if, you're, if you're up on your gospel of John, there should be a lot of, of echoes here that you're hearing where John describes Jesus as the eternal word who is life. And he brings life. He brings life because he is life. He sustains all life, you'll remember from John chapter 1. And so here the apostle John says that life, Jesus as life, he was revealed to us. And we, we have seen it and we, we testify and declare to you that. And then he says the eternal life, right? This quality of life, this eternal life that was with the Father was revealed to us. So again, he's saying what we lived, what we lived, what we saw, what we heard, this is Jesus who is the bringer of life, right? And he is eternal life. And he was in eternity past with the father. And yet he was on earth with us. And we walked around with him and we heard what he taught and we saw him heal people and we touched people that he healed. And we even touched him after he rose from the dead, right? And all of that, he says, there's this message that then gives life. What kind of life? Eternal life. And it's all linked directly to what Jesus did and who he is. The first thing we learned this morning here in 1 John is that the message of the gospel gives life. The message of the gospel gives life. Message is another way to, to capture that idea of the word of life, right? And this message about Jesus being in eternity past with the Father, and yet by the incarnation coming and walking around on earth with people and teaching certain things and doing certain things, right? That message, Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead, literally, actually, in such a way that the disciples could touch him, right? That message, it gives life. And so we have the word about the word that produces spiritual life. You just got to know this morning, and it's so important for John because he's like, here's the deal. We're not making this up. All the so what's, all the practical life change, all the reason why you should do this in your family instead of that, and this at school at work instead of that, and all the X's and O's, right? All the specifics that he'll get to, all of that, it's all predicated on an actual message of stuff that really happened with Jesus. Things that he said, things that he did. 
And so John says, we're not making this up. This is the real deal. And what's at stake? Nothing less than eternal life. And eternal life there, it's a quality, not a, not a, a duration. So uh, everyone will exist forever. The question is, under what circumstances will you exist forever? You will li- either exist forever in judgment, or you will exist forever with eternal life. And so he says, here's the deal. It matters. This message, this particular message gives life. You just got to know this morning that nothing else can give spiritual life. Nothing else. Now, there are a lot of things that claim to do that, either explicitly or implicitly. Explicitly, an alternate religion would say this actually gives life. But of course, we find that not to be true. Implicitly, that's more the struggle, I think, that we face in our culture, where we have alternate claims of life. Nothing else can give you the life that Jesus can give you. No academic degree can do that. No achievement at work or, or no grades at school can give you that quality of life, eternal life in Christ. No self-help program can do that. No workout regime can do that. No protein supplement can do it, right? No diet can do it. No entertainment can do it. No level of binging this or seeing that or my team finally winning this. No amount of money can do it can't give you life, no possession. That house you want that you don't have, the car that everybody else has that you wish you had, right? That phone, the the, the fashion, whatever it is everybody's wearing, like none of that can give us life. It's only this message, the word about the word. It's this message of who Jesus is, what he's done, and why it makes a difference for us. And so right at the outset of this letter, with the Apostle John, we have to say, okay, truth does matter. It does matter what Jesus said and what he did and what happened. It matters what the apostles heard. And so, in in a sense, you say, well, how do we know what Jesus said? How do we know what he did? And the answer, of course, is that God has blessed us with his word. And so we have this gift in the gospel of John. And guess what? Not just one gospel. We've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke also explaining it, right? This is what Jesus did. And then we've got the rest of the New Testament where we have that explained and applied. We have the story in Acts of how the the church grew and spread. We've got the promises of Jesus coming in the Old Testament and the history of how we got from the garden to to Jesus the Messiah arriving. All of that is a gift. And here, what John is saying is you got to have the right information. If you want life, and we all want it, right, you got to have the right information. So here it is. This message, this message of the gospel, it gives life. The Bible, we might say, just, you know, kind of fast forwarding to our circumstances, the Bible matters. It must be central. It has to have the final say. My friend Calvin said it this way. Um, He said, the first step in true knowledge is taken when we reverently embrace the testimony which God has been pleased to give. So good. He's like, you want, you want to know how to navigate life? You want, you want to know how to do that? He says, the first step in that is to embrace the testimony that God has been pleased to give about himself. The Apostle John says, I'm going to give you what I got. I'm going to tell you what I saw. I'm going to tell you what we heard. I'm going to tell you what he did. And so when we embrace the scripture as the divinely provided message, right? When we embrace that, we have taken the first steps in actual genuine transformation. So how do we do that? How how do we keep the message central? How do we 
might say it, you know, prioritize God's word. There are ways we can do this personally and corporately. I'm just going to brainstorm a few of them with you this morning. You can run with this uh, later. I, I would encourage you to discuss it. Maybe, maybe as a family, think, think about how it works out in your circumstances. But personally, we prioritize the message of the word by being familiar with it. Read the Bible. Like, read the Bible. Memorize parts of Scripture. Work hard at it. Talk about the Bible. Talk about the parts that are confusing, that are weird, right? Talk about what you're learning from it, what you're not learning, right? Talk, talk about uh, what, what is God doing to you through it. Maybe there's an element here where we respond by changing priorities in our lives because of what we're reading in God's Word. So I would say a way to prioritize the Bible is to actually submit to it. Submit to the Lord by, his, by heeding His Word, right? All those are maybe personal applications. You can run with those. Of course, corporately, we can also prioritize the Word of God. In the same sense as we might talk about it individually or as a family, I would encourage us as a church to continue to talk about the Word of God together. We want Bible-saturated ministries in our church, right? We don't want to be doing stuff and have the Bible be an afterthought. Because whatever we're doing, we got to know what the apostles heard, what they saw, what they experienced. We, it's this message that gives life. There's nothing else. And that's an important reminder as we you know, navigate ebbs and flows in culture and trends and all of that. We obviously respond to the situation that we're in. But as we respond to changing circumstances, the message that gives life, it hasn't changed. And so we, we say, okay, new circumstances, but the message is the same. So how do we communicate it clearly? How do we facilitate opportunities to share this message with others? How do we make and mature disciples, right, based on the Word of God? So we want the Bible to be, um, be, have the front you know, spot in all of our ministries. We also want the Bible to dictate our priorities and philosophy as a church. Um, I get, I've told you this before, I don't know if I have it in a message, but man, I get emails every week from people who have solved the problem. We know how to make your church successful right? And it's so weird because it always comes with a subscription. But anyway, um, you know, it's like, hey, and they, they know what pastors want. They're like, hey, pastor, do you want a larger congregation? Do you want more giving? Do you want ministries that explode on people and they just grow? And it's like, yes, I want all of that. It's like, okay, sign up now. And then for only, you know, three installments or whatever, it's like, okay, hold on. Um, like, I don't really care. <laughs> like, whoops. <laughs> Are we recording this? Okay. Um, we have what we need philosophically. Like we share the message. I mean, let's, we, know what we, we know what we need to do. We have it here, right? So we want the Bible to dictate our priorities and our philosophy. And when we're dealing with um, issues in our church family, either issues with one another or issues that some, one family's facing or you're facing as a, a, an individual who's a part of this church, what we don't want to do is say, okay, hey, listen, you're having this problem. Why don't we go try to solve it outside of the context of God's word? And we'll get all the answers there and see if we can fix it. And if that doesn't work, last resort, we'll go to the Bible. No, no, that's not what we're about. We're saying if this really is the message that gives life, then our first step in dealing with problems in our lives is to go to the word of God. So we want to have that approach in our care groups. We want to have that approach in our Bible studies. We want to have that approach in our counseling ministry, that when we counsel, we counsel from the Word of God, both conversationally, informally, and formally. When we're sitting down and working on a tough issue, right, we're going to do this with God's Word as the basis. Why? Because this is the message that gives life. This is the only one. So we're going to stick with that. We're going to run with that. Now, 
There's a temptation here. We, what we're not going to do is worship the Bible, right, as, as a book independent, right, of the Lord. So we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who is revealed in the Bible, right? It's his word, and therefore we treat it with reverence. That's why we read it. That's why we take such time to focus on it together. But we don't worship it, right? We worship the God who's revealed in it. And that's important. The Bible, it's, it gives us this map, this framework for dealing with what's going on in our lives. It does not give us the answer to every specific question we're going to ask, but it does give us true wisdom. And so we rely on that message. Again, this is the message that gives life. So we run with that. It's important, I think, also to just remember that as we think about this being the only message that gives life, there's just a reminder that there's urgency in sharing it. Listen, if, if you're watching this, you're here, you're, you're with us this morning worshiping, and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never responded to this message positively by saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I trust him, right? If, that, if you've never done that, then I have no basis to say you will experience eternal life. There is such a thing as eternal life, and God has made a way for us to experience it, and it's through the word that gives life. Jesus came to provide that for us. So I'd invite you, if you want to talk to me about it, I would love to talk with you more about that message, about how you can respond and receive that gift even today and and receive that blessing of eternal life. Now, John has interrupted himself in verse 2. So now in verse 3, he kind of picks up the, the line of thought and he said, okay, the message of gospel, that's the message that gives life. He's talked about that life being revealed in real time and space. And now in verse 3, he, he says, well, it's not all it gives. It doesn't just give life. Watch verse 3. Again, he picks up on verse 1 here. He says, what we have seen and heard, right, talking about the apostles, we also declare to you. We share this message. Why? So that you may also have fellowship with us and, crucially, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John says, what we heard and saw, we have delivered to you. We've declared it to you for, with a purpose. So that you can receive or have the benefit of fellowship with us and with God the Father and God the Son. Now what we need to do this morning is we need to rescue this word fellowship from, you know, kind of recent Christian history. So... When we say fellowship, I know that 99% of us in this room think about chit-chat over bagels in the fellowship hall. Can I get an amen? Okay. Honestly, I'm thinking about starting a bagel shop and I'm just going to call it fellowship. You know, like that's like, because there's a connection there. Somehow with bagels, it's like it's in there. It's like in the, in the Greek. I think it's there. Uh, this word, it, 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 does not, it does not mean chit-chat. It, it doesn't mean anything like that. The word, it could be translated partnership, shared interest, uh, shared community, right? So we're talking about that word fellowship. We're talking about having a stake in something with other people. So you're in a group together. The closest analogy I can give you to that this morning to help you is the Green Bay Packers. In Pastor Andy's office, you'll see on the wall a, it looks like it's worth a million dollars. It's on the wall. It's this, it's this certificate. And it is a one share of ownership in the Green Bay Packers. Now, the Green Bay Packers is the only team in the NFL that has shareholders, and uh, there are like 7 billion shareholders. Uh, but once a year, they have a shareholders meeting at the, at the stadium there in Green Bay. What's it called, Andy? I forget. Lambeau, thank you. And uh, 
So uh, at that place, um, also the frozen tundra, right? Isn't that another? Anyway, they, they have a meeting once a year and any shareholder can come to the meeting, okay? And then they would vote on particular, like especially hiring the general manager, whoever's in charge or whatever. And, and they have a say, they have a stake in what happens with the Green Bay Packers, right? That, that's a real thing. That's, you can go see it in pastor's, Pastor Andy's office after church, okay? But this is, this is the concept that the word fellowship in the New Testament brings with it. It's not chit-chat. This is about the fact that you have a stake in this community, that you belong to the community, okay? You are now a partner in the kingdom of God, a member of God's family, and now we go together. And so John says, because of the message, this message, has, it gives life. It's the word of life. But he says that message also brings, and I'll use the word this morning, belonging. Okay, belonging. We could use partnership. We could use community. There's all kinds of synonyms there, but I'll just choose belonging for now. That I am a part of something, and I am an active participant in it. Right? You are a part of the church, and you are now an active participant in the church. You have a stake in it. You are a shareholder in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That message that gives life also gives belonging. And so what we have to do is we have to recognize, hey, wait a minute. I'm called to this. The truth, the message, the doctrine about Jesus then actually results in, John says, we shared it so that I can be in a particular community. He actually describes it in two ways in verse 3. He talks about, first of all, how it's community with the apostle John and his homies, okay, his friends, his, his compatriots, right? So John has this group of believers that he's with and probably ministering primarily in Asia Minor, in the first century, but he says, you are now a part of the Christian community with us, with the other apostles, with all the other churches and all the other towns where Peter was going and Paul was going. And all the, so now you have all these churches that are cropping up all over the place. And he says, we are together, right? Partners in the gospel. So in verse three, when he says, and in, uh, he says, so that you may have fellowship with us, there's a, a horizontal, right? Reality where you are now in relationship to every other believer in Jesus, the ones in your town, the local ones, as well as across the world. And we could even add now, even throughout time. And so now we have this, this partnership or this belonging with other believers. There is, again, that horizontal component here. So you might ask this question. As a result of the truth of who Jesus is, the sound theology, right? Am I functioning as a part of the family of God? Am I living as one who is a shareholder in the gospel. Philippians, am I a citizen of the gospel in that sense? What does it look like? Well, together, as believers in Jesus, we have shared purpose. We live together to glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus. We live together serving, using our giftedness to build up one another for the glory of God. We have that shared purpose of living for the glory of God above all else, and we do it together. That's the beauty of the design there's a closeness in the community. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the relationships we have in the church are eternal. They will outlast every other relationship you have. Think about that. And so there's this bond, this eternal bond of unity in the gospel that we share that's stronger than any other bond because we didn't make it because God has made it through the ministry of Jesus on our behalf. I wonder, do we, do we feel that closeness? And not that, we're all, that we all like the same things, not that we all spend all of our free time together, but that we know when push comes to shove, we're family, 
right? And we're together. There's co-laboring together for the sake of the gospel, right? There's a shared love in that we love Christ together. Again, that's why gathering for worship is such a crucial part of the regular life of the church because we gather together and we sing to the God we love because we need that encouragement together. We need to remind all the other shareholders that we believe together and we need that encouragement. We pray together. We work together, right? And obviously we recognize that in John's mind, and in God's design, there, there is no lone ranger Christian. We cannot function that way. The church isn't designed for that. It's not designed to be a one-person community. In fact, it cannot function with that, with that mindset. But it's not just about fellowship with one another. And I would encourage you, maybe you just think about what are ways I can increase the buy-in, my buy-in personally, in the church. How can I increase my level of connection with the body of Christ here? Because I'm a shareholder, right? I'm in, I'm in the kingdom. And so we, we're apart together. But it's not just about the horizontal community, right? He goes on in the end of verse 3 to say, and indeed our fellowship, what? The indeed adds emphasis here. And, and wow, it's not just fellowship with the apostle John, cool as that is. He says, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Think about that for one second. Because of the gospel, we are partners with the Father and the Son by virtue of the Spirit. He doesn't focus on the Spirit's role here, but the Spirit actually uh, awakens us to, to spiritual life. The Spirit is the connection that we have between ourselves and the Father and the Son. But just think about that for a minute, that we are in community with God the Father and Jesus the Son. That we are partners we have shared interests with them. That there's certainly a hierarchy, right? As we respond in humility and service to the Father and Son. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have unity with God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. And no one can take that away. What does that look like? Well, again, shared purpose, right? Shared love. God has a purpose and agenda item for the universe. It's to show His greatness, through his acts, and we're a part of that. And so we share his purpose. And there's also a shared love. You know, God, in his character, infinitely loves everything that is lovely. And so there's a sense in which we share his view. We say, okay, what God has shown us to be lovely, we love. And of course, he is infinitely lovely. And so we love him infinitely. We're in relationship to God now, as sinners, we, we had had no hope of that relationship. You're never getting into that party, right? I mean, you're never getting into that party. And yet God says, I have made a way for you through Jesus. And so when Jesus dies for our sins, he facilitates forgiveness for our failures. And he blesses us and gifts us with his righteousness. So now we're in relationship with him. And now that fellowship we have with the Father and the Son is our identity. This is theology, but it hits us right where we live every day. Because John says, today, right now, because of this message, we have fellowship together. Horizontally, as a church family, but then vertically. We have relationship and fellowship with God. And so that, that changes our daily outlook. It, it equips us to think and to live differently. My friend Spurgeon, he said, Do you not desire his glory as he desires it? It's a rhetorical question. You're like, yeah, wait, what? Do I? 
Am I as passionate for God's glory as he is? Am I ready to reorient the way I think about family, finances, health, right, career, grades, school, vocation, all the stuff? Am I ready to rethink all of that on the basis of God's glory being the number one agenda item of this universe? And am I ready to accept the fact that my identity in Christ is my eternal identity? That it, no one can take it away, and I'm safe in Christ. So we love to sing that song in Christ alone because it expresses it so well in so many different ways. That it's in Christ that we stand, right? It's in his provision that we are protected. And there is no guilt in life. There is no condemnation, right? Because we are in Christ. And so we cherish that and we rejoice in that provision. But do we recognize that it has an impact on our daily decision making? There are threats to this community, right? That one of the main threats that faces the community of the church horizontally and our community with the Father and the Son is, frankly, that we have other partnerships that we're in and we, we might give them greater priority. So this is where we get messed up. I was joking about the Packers. Some Packers fans, not Pastor Andy, some Packers fans care about the Packers too much. Can I get an amen? You're like, I don't know where this is going. I don't know if I feel like I'm going to amen that. Sometimes we care about things of the world too much. And so it's, we do it with athletics, we do it with entertainment, we do it with looks and appearance, we do it with all kinds of stuff, career, all of it. And, and so the fact is we just have to acknowledge that on some days we have, to, we have to recognize and choose that my partnership and share in the gospel has to be my primary allegiance. Here's the good truth. When we live like that, all those other areas of our lives, they do improve. They actually fall into line. And so there's blessing in understanding that that uh, every aspect of our life is subsumed under the umbrella of being in this community of God's kingdom. Our family makes better sense in God's kingdom. Our attitude at work makes, makes better sense in God's kingdom. Navigating stuff at school is, is different and easier under God's kingdom, right? So we have this, this recognition, wow, that priority must, God's kingdom priority must be the primary priority. But many days we struggle to actually make that a reality. So that's a threat uh, to this community and this blessing in belonging. Uh, we also have the threat of isolation from the community. So this is a struggle in many ways. And um, as a church, speaking frankly, when people are absent from the community over time, it's a red flag. And we start to go, wait a minute, what's going on? Are they okay? Are they struggling? Like, what, because if they're not with the community regularly, we're going, okay, wait a minute. If they're isolated from the family, then something's going on. And they need help. They need care, right? And so we, we work hard to try to provide that care, which is incidentally why the last year and a half has been such a bizarre and difficult time as a church to navigate. Because we recognize there's legitimate you know, health concerns that we have and we share uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, we also affirm and acknowledge that there's no way we can function on earth without the church family gathering. And so we, you know, we do what we can. We have to make accommodations. We have to be gracious and patient and seek wisdom. But at the end of the day, we have to be together. And so there's just difficulty in that. And Satan wants the church isolated. He wants you out of the community because you're more exposed. And sometimes isolation from the community is self-imposed. Sometimes it's just culturally, you know, we're getting more and more to a place as a culture where it's just Sundays are not about corporate worship, which that's neither here nor there. It is what it is. 
But we have to make a decision and say, okay, wait a minute, I value this community. It could be a result of persecution in some cultures, where persecution makes it hard for the church to gather. So you have to navigate that. In a lot of cases, there aren't easy answers for how we do that. But at the end of the day, John says, we've shared this message with you so that you can have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. So the message, the message of the gospel, it gives life and it gives belonging. But that's not all. Watch verse 4. John goes on and he says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, some of you in your Bibles might read that verse and it says, We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. There's a legitimate challenge there in the translation. I will tell you this, um, both are true. And so this is one of those circumstances where we can understand this verse as it applies both to the general uh, joy of the apostolic mission of advancing the cause of the gospel. That's the we, by the way, of John. We, John the apostle, the other apostles, those ministering with him, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy as ministers of the gospel may be complete. How is his joy made complete? When he sees people believe the truth about Jesus and that truth transforms their life. He says, when that happens, he says, our joy is complete. There's a lasting, eternal joy in that. It's not a plastic, you know, circumstantial, you know, kind of happiness. This is like the real deal, complete joy when he sees the mission bearing fruit, right? And that's what John says. On the other hand, of course, we're included in that joy because when we become shareholders, we're now part of the we in a sense. And so now it's our joy as well that is complete as we see the message believed and applied and lives changed and transformation happen. And so all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, this message of the gospel, it doesn't just give us life, (laughs) crucial. It doesn't just give us belonging, which we need. It also gives us joy. And I'm telling you what, this is the struggle because so often every day in our lives, we chase other things for joy. And we think, oh, this will give me joy and that'll give me joy. But nothing can complete our joy. Nothing can provide the eternal provision of joy the way the gospel can. This is lasting joy here. And so we see that it unfolds in a couple of ways specific to this passage, right? In in preservation of the gospel message in the community, we see there's joy in that. So when John records and passes on the message about Jesus, and again, people believe it, that results in joy. So this is a good thing that we have truth and doctrine and theology. We need God's word to have joy. Secondly, we have joy in the partnership for God's glory. So the horizontal and vertical fellowship that we just talked about, in that fellowship, there is joy. Maybe that's where the bagels come in. I don't, you know, we're like working on that. Like, how does that connect? That's the thing. When we spend time together outside of a corporate gathering, right, and we're talking with one another, and we're building relationships, and we're investing in one another, which often happens over food. Praise the Lord, right? That happens. When we're doing that, one of the byproducts of that is joy, where there's just something to it. It's hard to quantify. That is, the church is being the church. John says, our joy is complete. Like, it, it, we see it happening. And so he says, I want you to grow. I want you to believe. I want you to be changed so that I can rejoice in that, and you can rejoice in that. A third way this happens is, well, frankly, we're given joy that replaces or displaces fear, despair, bitterness, discouragement, anxiety, sadness. 
name it. I mean, we have these struggles, things that rob us of joy on a regular basis. And that's a part of living in a broken world. And yet here, the Apostle John says, listen, the message gives life and it gives us fellowship, belonging, and therefore our joy is complete and your joy can be made complete. You can have that lasting joy instead of being afraid all the time. You don't have to be afraid all the time because of the gospel. Instead of despair, because whatever circumstance you're facing that might drive you to despair, ultimately Jesus is the solution for. And it will be solved. The wrong will be made right over time. And we may have a a while to wait for that. And there's patience and perseverance that's required. But whatever's telling you despair, there's no hope. Jesus says there's guaranteed hope because I died for your sins and I rose from the dead. And John says, we touched him. It's real. The truth matters. You might be bitter because of a past wrong. And in the message of the gospel that gives life, Right? That message says Jesus has provided a healing balm for that bitter wound. And so you, you, can, you can just understand that in Christ, your hurt right, ultimately will be addressed. Either he died for that sin committed against you, or he will judge that sin committed against you. But either way, it's taken care of. And so you don't have to hold on to the bitterness and be angry and, and you know, lash out and get your own vengeance. No. We can, instead, we can have joy. Joy in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Maybe you've got anxiety. You're so worried about and concerned with and obsessed with this or that happening. Might, will it happen? What happens if? But John says, honestly, the most important thing already happened. And this, is, that's what, this changes everything. Says, that's why we've got to share it with you. Because, because of Jesus, it's all different now. You don't have to be anxious. Maybe you're sad. You're just down because, because of the consequences of sin that you've experienced. Yours, someone else's, right? Living in a broken world, we endure death. We endure discouragement because of failures that we, we have or others have. But at the end of the day, John says, because of the message of life, we can have joy. And it's complete joy. It's the real deal. You'll be tempted. They'll try to sell you something else that'll give you joy. PS5 can't do it. That, that, that new, you know, diet pill that they just approved, that can't do it. Might help you lose weight, but it's not going to give you joy. Okay? That investment fund that they guarantee X percent return can't give you joy. Might make you rich, but it can't give you joy. And I don't know what, what, what else they'll try to sell you, but they'll try to sell you something, and they'll say, this is what's going to solve your problems. And the answer is, my problems have already been taken care of. There's a message, the message about the Word, Jesus, eternally preexistent with the Father who took on flesh for us, died for my sins, rose from the dead. And because of that message, I have life, eternal life. I have belonging. I have a stake in the kingdom of God. And I have true joy that no one can take away. Again, I go back to my friend Wilby, back there in in the 1700s in England and dealing with the, the moral decline you know, kind of a, a prophet of our circumstances in our nation today with moral decline. And you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, you know what? We just need to try harder. Whatever you're going through over here practically, the answer, right, to deal with this issue is not just, you know what? I'm just going to buckle down and try harder to do what's right. We'll be new. 
He said, what we've got to address is what do we believe? Do we know the truth? Have we put our faith in the Jesus who is? Again, he said it better than I could. He said, Christianity calls on us, not merely in general, to be religious and moral, but specifically to believe the doctrines and imbibe the principles and precepts of Christ. He says, you got to believe it by faith, and, then you, and that will transform your life. That's what the gospel, or that's what the, the letter of 1 John is all about. It gives us this message, and it does change everything. This message gives us life. This message gives us belonging, and this message gives us joy. You might ask this morning, what has it done to you? Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us live out these truths. Lord, we thank you for 1 John. We thank you for just getting started here and looking at these first few verses. We thank you for the promise of eternal life in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that there is an objective reality to the fact, Lord Jesus, that you lived on earth, that you walked around with the disciples, that you spoke and that you healed. And Lord, we thank you that you did actually die in our place. Lord, may it never be so familiar that we, we lose a sense of awe over your sacrifice for us. But Lord, also we, we stand in awe that you rose from the dead and that the disciples, they touched your body having defeated death in the grave, having defeated sin. And Lord, we thank you that there is now this message that gives us eternal life. Lord, there is this message that gives us belonging and true fellowship, partnership with each other in the church community, with you. And Lord, we thank you that this message brings us bulletproof joy. We pray that you would help us to value truth, not just for truth's sake, but to value it because we value you. And Lord, we pray that there would be life change, evidence in our lives that we have believed this gospel. So help us now as we go to cherish the truth of who you are and to live in light of it. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.